So I'd like to speak this evening about what it means to wholeheartedly embrace our aliveness. What we, I think, really can't help but notice and uh, frequently encounter in the context of our practice here on retreat and equally in our lives is the element of what makes up our experience, we could say, our life that we could describe as sensitivity. The fact that we are in contact with, that we are touched by, that at times we are impacted by the world around us. And this is something that we equally notice as, as or together with the sensitivity. Please come and take your seats, it's fine. As well as this sensitivity, we also notice a, a responsivity, a capacity to respond, an ability to engage with, sometimes usefully, sometimes not so usefully, with the experiences to which we are sensitive, by which we are impacted. And the very quality of aliveness, of what it is that makes us know that, or speak in terms of being alive, is very much associated with this, is very much connected with this being impacted or affected, and equally with the sense of responding to it. And one of my teachers would sometimes describe the, the, the very nature of consciousness and the way trying to understand what it is that we're talking about when we talk about what we are or how we at least conventionally speak about what we are. He, he would speak about the chitta, which we've, we've mentioned, the sense of the, the consciousness is that which is affected and responds. And I find it really a useful way of understanding something that's otherwise sort of we can have lots of different views and takes on what it is. Now, what probably we notice is that one of the primary drives we experience in terms of our sensitivity is the, the drive, the endeavor, the engagement with what's around us and what's in us in order to try and get to a state of comfort. Or if we've managed to get to a state of comfort, trying to stay in that condition. And probably we've noticed, hopefully we've noticed that it's something that doesn't really seem to work. That's one of the things we perhaps get or feel a little confronted with here on a retreat and maybe in other places that it's really hard work trying to get comfortable and having got comfortable, trying to stay comfortable. It's really hard work and mostly it's not that successful. I mean, that's kind of frustrating and annoying, isn't it? Really. <clears throat> We put in this much time and effort. We should get some results, surely. So one thing that is really useful in this context to contemplate, to reflect on, is really the high degree of sensitivity that we have. That what we are as an as a, as a expression of aliveness is something that is actually only comfortable within a very, very limited range of circumstances and conditions. You know, it's really limited. Well, if you think just of the, you know, 
don't know if it's getting to be a sore point, but, you know, temperature. We kind of have an idea of summer. It might be nice. If it was warm, we could relax and be comfortable and, you know, sort of, you know, 20, 24 degrees would be nice. You know, we're not asking for too much, are we? Surely a few days like that at least might be nice. Um, and actually, if we, if we take a sort of a step back with regard to temperature, I believe the coldest temperature it can possibly get to be is about minus 272 degrees centigrade, which is zero on the Kelvin scale, but about minus 272 or three, I can't remember. Three, did someone say? Okay, thank you, thank you. Okay, let's get it right. Um, the other end of the scale is somewhere in the hundreds of thousands of millions of degrees centigrade. That's about as hot as it gets, as far as anyone can tell, at the core of a, of a, a supernova. Um, no, there might have been an extra couple of thousands of millions in there that I've missed, but it's sort of possibly not so relevant. Um, but somewhere between um, about 15 and, or maybe 18 and 25, we're comfortable. Do you get how tiny a little spot that is between the range of minus 273 and hundreds and hundreds of millions? You know, it's like, wow. And then actually where we'd really like to be is just that precise spot at about number 24. You know, because at 32, it's, oh, no, I don't want to be that hot. You know, we, we might, you know, wish for a bit of warmth, but not if we were in America in the Midwest right now where it's 37, 38 degrees, and you realise, gosh, actually, we're pretty lucky that we're even halfway comfortable occasionally. And we might even recognise how fortunate we are that we, you know, came to this planet rather than somewhere else, because there's actually very few places in the whole of the universe where you ever find the temperature anywhere near the range of, you know, 15 to 24, where we're relatively comfortable. It kind of gives us some perspective on why it's hard work, huh? And, of course, if we come to something a little bit more, in a way, close to the, uh, what the organism is concerned about, at the core of our body, it's about, you know... 37 degrees, and if it goes more than three or four degrees, either uh, if it goes two degrees either side of that, we're really not well. We're not happy. It's really unpleasant on the inside if, if that core shifts. If we go four degrees, probably, well, we've got a good chance of being dead. Certainly five or six, and we are. If we get that much more below or above 37. And so it's like, wow, no wonder we're working pretty hard to try and stay in that centre ground. And that's just one expression, just one of the elements of where we're trying to stay comfortable in a range of temperatures that it's pretty hard to. And that at some level could have some significant impact on us. Our mind, of course, isn't that different, is it? In terms of sensitivity? Our sort of, we could say, psyche, the sort of the, the emotional um, feeling condition of our hearts and minds. It's really sensitive as well. The number of people, and it's really not surprising or unusual or anything wrong with it, but, but so many people, just the very thought of going to a group interview, it's like, oh my gosh, what's it going to be like? You know, there's the odd person for whom, great, you know, but they're in a very small minority as far as I can tell, unless they're keeping it quiet, you know, which is possible. Might be the sort of thing to keep quiet if everyone else doesn't seem to have the same experience. We sometimes think, I better not let on. I'm enjoying it here, you know. Um, and... And it just to be in the proximity of other people and make a few sounds with our mouths is really scary. You know? 
What's that about? Not to judge it, but to acknowledge, wow, we're sensitive. We, we can imagine that if we say the wrong thing, someone might not like us. Huh? And that might be difficult to bear, so we're not sure. We'd like to say the right thing so they do like us. That would be nice. Mm-hmm. And it's yet we don't know what's going to make the difference. We don't know what thing to say will have the right effect. You know, and the risk of just saying what's going on, oh my gosh. You know. So we're really sensitive human beings. And with the sensitivity, one of the ways we allow ourselves and, and sort of in a way provide a safe space for us to ex- ourselves to explore the sensitivity, it's like creating the framework of silence where we're not apart from in those small group meetings or occasional you know, individual um, interviews or that, we're not needing to come out and engage in the normal ways. And therefore we can start to feel and perhaps learn to take care of that sensitivity more fully. And one of, those, one of the elements with that that just, I just want to name also, that when we are in this condition and community together, we really feel each other. We notice each other. When someone's distressed, we, we feel. We can be concerned. When someone's um, maybe exuberant, we notice it too. And, and so what we do has an effect. This is another reason why we ask everyone to be kind of quite contained in a certain way. It kind of seems a little strange to begin with. Like, why should I just do what I want to? Why can't I sing and dance if I feel like it? And if you are on retreat by yourself, that would be fine. But because we're doing it together, we try and find a certain balance. And one of the things we ask is to, to not engage in reading and writing in the public spaces because what happens is for other people, they might, having been doing quite all right without it, start thinking, maybe I should be reading or writing. Or what about those books or those notes or those things? So we ask people not to do that, not because there's anything wrong with doing it or there's anything bad about doing it, absolutely not, but because it has an impact on other people. Hmm? So, so with that, then there's this problem, but how do we ask them, because we don't want to make them feel like it's not okay or they're somehow wrong for doing it. And so we see that, oh, there's another whole sensitivity here. We really are very sensitive human beings. There's a, a lovely story that, uh, for me, expresses very well this. Um, and it involves an old samurai warrior who was once walking down a dusty village road in old Japan and he was contemplating, thinking about important and profound spiritual questions as he walked and he came across this small and sort of wizened, wrinkled old monk sitting cross-legged on the side of the road and he came up to the monk the samurai warrior came up to the monk and said, oh Monk, you are a holy man. Can you tell me the difference between heaven and hell? Little monk looked up, said, Samurai, your robes are dirty. Samurai, I see rust on your sword. And, and Samurai, you smell bad. You are a disgrace to your noble order. Why should I speak to you? And the samurai, this proud warrior, pulls out his sword. No little pipsqueak's going to speak to me like that. And he's just about to take this monk's head off. 
when the monk looks at him and says, that's hell. <laughs> and the samurai realizes, oh, oh my gosh, a few words. I was about to take someone's life for a few words, completely against my whole code of spiritual practice and warriorship. And he suddenly realizes this little monk has risked his life to give him this message, this, this lesson, to teach him something about hell. Hell is a condition in which one would take the life of another out of pride or irritation. And suddenly he realized, wow, what a gift. And he was beaming down at this little monk with just gratitude and appreciation. Thank you, thank you. The little monk sitting there looks up and says, that's heaven. (laughs) So much we can be affected, we can be impacted. And when our heart actually opens to what is here, even though it might have come with an initially painful package or impact, there's something very powerful, something very beautiful that can take place. So, with this experience, this human experience of vulnerability, of sensitivity, what we can reflect on or notice is that probably we've all at times had the experience where there's been more impact than we could handle. Certainly when we're little as children or babies, it's really easy for us to be overwhelmed by the degree of impact, stimulation and contact, even if it's not directly unpleasant. It might just be too much or too strong for us. And the sense of being overwhelmed inwardly when we don't understand what's happening, and we don't when we're young, and we don't necessarily when we're an adult either until we've really looked at this, the effect of being overwhelmed in in terms of the psyche is the sense of an inner fragmentation or dissolution that feels like annihilation. It feels like destruction. It actually feels like death in a certain way, so far as one can know that from that place. That being overwhelmed is something that we actually feel incredibly threatened by. And for most of us, we'll go a long way to make sure, and sometimes quite appropriately, to protect ourselves from being overwhelmed. It's actually skillful. It's not useful to be overwhelmed. It's not helpful. It doesn't really allow us to to grow, to learn, to open in the way that we can within practice. So one of the elements of practice is, is learning where to get a gentle stretch, but without pushing or being pushed too hard. And it's an inner balancing that we learn to see, okay, where's a little bit of stretch but not too much? Because this is actually how we open, this is how we grow. And yet, because perhaps... In the past and equally in the present, we're not in control of all the factors of what's coming in or that we have to deal with. There's a concern and often understandable anxiety that I'm going to be overwhelmed, that what's coming or what I'm having to deal with may be more than I can handle. And so this this condition of fear, of anxiety arises to avoid discomfort, to avoid pain, because in some way it's associated with an anticipation of continuity or increasing intensity that would lead to some form of annihilation, some way in which overwhelm feels that scary and threatening to us. And if we don't really 
reflect on this, if we don't take time to let ourselves feel into, what does that mean for me? How does that look for me? Because, of course, it's not the only thing that's going on in our lives or our hearts. There's many other ways and experiences and responses we have. But this particular one really bears some attention. We could ask ourselves the question, and usefully I think, how much of my life have I spent trying to avoid encountering what I fear? How much of my life have I spent trying to prevent myself being impacted or touched by that which I do not wish to be touched or impacted by? I mean, it makes absolutely no sense to go and stand in the rain. Really, does it? Absolutely no sense. Because if you get wet, you could get cold. If you get cold, you could get hypothermia. If you get hypothermia, you could die. And people do from getting caught out in the rain for too long in the wrong conditions. So at one level, I think, no way would we do that. Why would I do that? And it makes sense from that point of view to make sure we don't get so cold, we get hypothermia. Or even catching a flu or a a cold isn't such a great thing to do for ourselves. And yet often when we look and we think in this way, we hesitate to enter into experiences and check them out fully. Because we're so afraid of what might come to pass if we do. Mark Twain apparently once said, almost all of the worst experiences of my life never actually happened. <laughs> but the anticip- he didn't, you know, but we recognize that since the anticipation, the fear of what might happen, that's actually the worst experience. If it happens, when it happens, then we can deal with it. Or we're annihilated, in which case the issue is gone. There's nothing left to be done. But if we're not annihilated, we deal with it. Really, that's what happens. But trying to deal with it before it's happened, impossible. And the effect of that is a sense of kind of losing contact with where we are because we're out there in the future trying to deal with something that isn't. Trying to deal with something that isn't. And how do we deal with that? We can't. And because we think we're supposed to, we get even more wound up by it. So what's important to notice in this process is that the experience is always happening right here. Fear arises in the present. There is no other place anything happens. And fear, being a something, happens here. But what it does, it arises here with a thought or a story or a movement into the future. Saying, what about that? What if that? What's going to happen when or if that? And because we don't know what's going to happen, we can't tell what's going to happen. We can't say that, well, no, these things won't happen. And we get caught in them, drawn into them. We might hope they won't, but we can't be certain because anything can happen. I did a retreat at Guy House, the old Guy House across the valley in June 1991 for 30 days. It rained for every day. <laughs> every day it rained. Not all day every day. Some days, every day, all day. But every day. And it was sort of like, how can this be? But it can. 
And we stood and walked in the rain some of the time or else we wouldn't have gone outside. So there's something really interesting with how we you know, deal with conditions here. I had really no sense of whether anybody at all would be silly enough to come and stand in the rain when I suggested it. Or courageous enough or just willing to give it a go and see what it's like. Not particularly courageous or silly, just what the heck, you know. And what's interesting in, when we move out into an experience is that often it changes. When we don't hold back from, when we say, when we give ourselves permission to say, I'll enter this and see, and if it's really as bad as it, I'm anticipating or thinking it might be, then I'll say, no thank you. So I'll go mindfully, I'll go cautiously, I'll go carefully. If my fingernails turn blue as I walk through the door, it's a sign. You know, okay, it's a bit cold out there. I'll go back inside. So there's the sense of meeting our experience where we are. When the fear is just there in terms of the story, to notice, oh, it's happening right here. It's the body activated, energized by it. And we can meet the experience here. Not in the thinking about, not in the projecting into the future and what might happen. Oh, my knee hurts, it's starting to really hurt. Well, it's been hurting all day. And before we know it, we're imagining and visualising being carried out of Guy House and taken to the ambulance and, you know, hoping we'll get a really nice wheelchair after the amputation. You know, just in moments the mind goes there. It's the future. It hasn't happened. It probably never will. We can just come back and say, oh, this is fear. Okay. Can I be with this? And then breathe again. And if I need to change the posture, I can. I don't have to wait till the ambulance comes. Really. So that sense of giving space to, of softening and widening that we've spoken about, breathing with softening, widening, opening, in a sense allowing our heart, which in this way I'm using that capacity to be sensitive to and responsive to, allowing that to embrace the territory that we find difficult or challenging or scary, that evokes anxiety or fear for us. So we embrace that territory, we take the attention into the region of the knee, or we take the attention to the place where there's oh, something a bit scary going on. And so we expand around it rather than contract away from it, rather than withdrawing from We engage, we embrace. And we can equally bring in a sense of loving kindness, the the sense of, may I be safe, may I be well, may I be protected, may I be taken care of. These sort of phrases, that, that, that phrase, may I be taken care of, when I eventually realized at some point on a retreat that what the anxiety I was encountering was about that I won't be looked after. In some way there was a wish for that. It's really amazing just to find the words that actually expressed what was being feared and just responding to them. Oh, may I be taken care of and have what I need? There was plenty of what I needed there, but something in me didn't quite believe it. And I said, oh, okay. So sometimes that's a way we can also respond to fear. In fact, the practice of loving kindness was first taught by the Buddha in that form as a response and a way of supporting monks and nuns who were practicing in the forest at night and getting really scared by all the sounds they heard and didn't know what they were. So rather than trying to avoid what's difficult, we 
learning what it means to open to it, to meet it, to make a, a response that's inclusive, that's caring. Because what happens if we don't do that is the world keeps getting smaller. The world and our sense of our the space of the inner world equally and the outer world, which actually really go together in this, the space gets smaller and smaller and smaller if we keep withdrawing from what is not easy to bear. And so if we can start to trust and just explore, we don't even have to trust, just explore what happens if I do that. What happens if I just try this a little bit, slowly, carefully, attentively, not pushing ourselves into it, but just... What if I don't go back for that third helping at lunch? Maybe I will be hungry come five o'clock, but let's just see how bad that is. You know, is it really going to be quite as bad as trying to keep myself awake at 2.45 having eaten three helpings and sitting on the cushion, my belly distended? I've done it. I don't know if you have, but I've certainly, you know, made sure I wasn't hungry at five o'clock by being really uncomfortable at 2.45. It's not such a great deal. Really, and I don't actually still didn't at that point yet really know how bad it would be to be hungry at five o'clock because I just made sure it never got I never got there. Yeah. So we can't avoid being impacted. That's not an option. If we withdraw from the world and from experience, that has an impact. We can't avoid being impacted. We can't separate ourselves from this life that touches us, that impacts us, that affects us. We are affected. There is no way around it. And yet we have this capacity to open to it, with it, around it. And you know, if it's okay that we get wet, Suddenly the world's a lot bigger. Suddenly, you know, it might feel there's not much space here. We're all packed into these little rooms. But if it's okay to be wet, there's tons of space out there. And it's a metaphor. I'm not saying you have to go out there and get wet. It's like we sometimes feel there's not so much space in here. Because at some level we've already decided it's not okay to inhabit some of what's here. Sometimes we need to go slowly with it, of course. It's really appropriate. It's actually really important to be respectful and gentle to not push ourselves, to be able to say, that's enough, you know, just a little bit and back off. Just a little bit and back off. But that's really different than saying, no way, never, not even a little bit, am I going to touch this, whatever this might be. If we're not conscious about it, if we're not inhabiting our experience consciously, and this is part of what we're learning to do here, to be conscious, to inhabit, to feel into it, then the, the habitual reaction to the elements of experience that are unpleasant or in some way scary or threatening to us means that we shut down, we close down. And it's like we, we try and create psychically a sort of armoring, a defensive structure of tightening. It's like if these soft, juicy little bags of mush, which is what we're made up of lots of, if they all just squeeze together hard enough, they're going to feel like they're going to be something like armour, you know? That's, that's kind of what goes on when we contract. It's like we're trying to get like something in our evolutionary history that actually had a shell around it. 
but wasn't actually particularly mobile or able to do a lot of the things we kind of take for granted. Hmm? So we get, in a way, trapped inside this unconsciously created structuredness, solidification, hardening, densification. And it's a kind of a... There's a certain sense of safety it creates for but for us, but at the same time there's a profound sense of limitation we experience within it. And something in our heart knows that that limitation, that limitedness, is not our deepest truth and is not ultimately what we really yearn for in our, in our core, in our being, in ourselves, in fact. So sometimes we have to also reflect on the conclusions that we've drawn about the fact that we are touched or impacted or affected by life. Because it's really easy to imagine that somehow if we had done this life better or got it right, hadn't ever messed up, it wouldn't have happened that way. It wouldn't have been that we were impacted, that there was pain or suffering for ourselves or for others. So easily the conclusion comes and sometimes helped by other people who'd like us to think it's out there, that their problem is our fault. Um, we come to this view that somehow my suffering or even the world's suffering is because I did something wrong. And it's only me in this place of where I am can create a real strong sense of isolation around our suffering when we take it in that way. It's my fault or it's just me. And one of the really useful things that can happen sometimes in the small group meetings is that we hear from each other. And we hear, and although each other's stories are quite different, particular and unique, there's certain threads and themes that are actually quite clearly common and shared that we can see that we can hear and that there's a way in which quite interestingly we feel some sense of connection or mutuality in our condition that it's not that somehow it just happened to me because I obviously messed up really badly while everyone else sailed along untouched unscathed and you know having got it right because we don't always talk about this with each other and mostly we try and pretend we're doing okay and we did get it right and everyone else is doing that it's easy to somehow buy into the fantasy that that's actually what's going on out there. But the reality is, certainly from many conversations I have and see in my own experience, that it's not like that. This is something we all encounter. And this was something the Buddha asked us to contemplate, to reflect on, to really look at as a, a foundation for understanding life. That we do experience these things that are difficult that are painful, that are scary, that are uncomfortable and unwanted at times. And the Buddha spoke about this in terms of the, the teaching, the truth of dukkha, of suffering, of unsatisfactoriness, knowing that there is this condition in life that needs to be understood. And the Buddha spoke of, and we've mentioned already the first aspect, he spoke of birth, aging, sickness, death. It's like the, the condition of this body, born, it ages, at times it's sick, Ultimately, it comes to dissolution, to death. And a lot of that isn't always easy. And that's how it is for us all. Having been born, there's no way out of aging, sickness and death. It comes. And we just can kind of reflect on that. Hmm, okay, birth, aging, sickness, death. Yeah, 
that's true. I can see that I'm involved in that. We've, you know, <laughs> various ways, you know. And then the Buddha went on to say, he said, sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation and despair. This too, human beings encounter in our hearts. Sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation and despair. You think, oh, yeah, ouch. And, and it hurts, doesn't it? And we all encounter these things at times. He went on to say, you know, being separated from what we love. Being brought into close proximity with that which we don't like. And not getting what we want. All this is dukkha. Body, heart, mind. We experience these things that are hard to bear. And we all do. Not because anyone's done it wrong. But because that is part of the nature of life. There is no way around it. You think you could have the world the way you wish it to be? You, you know, have you even tried to get one person to be the way you want them to be? <laughs> you know, good luck. <laughs> Let alone the rest of the world and the other six billion human beings and everything else. And another way that's useful that I find to reflect on to understand this, it's like we sometimes think, yeah, sure, okay, things are always going to be the way I want them to be. And, okay, you know, body goes through birth, ageing, sickness, death. Sure, I can get that. But surely if I did this right, I shouldn't have to experience sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation, and despair. Surely that's because I messed it up, isn't it? And I don't think so. And here's why. This is how I see it. If we love something or someone in our lives, even just one being or thing we love in our lives, at some point we'll be parted from that being or that thing. And that will be painful. We'll feel that. That will hurt. And if we don't love something or someone in this life, that will hurt. There isn't a third option. There isn't a third option. So we're called on to both acknowledge and accept this reality in life. I mean, it doesn't sound like a great advertisement for a meditation retreat, does it? Come along, experience suffering, pain, birth, death, (laughs) ageing, you know, and uh, grief, lamentation, all that sort of thing. We don't put that in the retreat description, do we? Sort of come along if you want to have more of this. Well, we don't need to. You know, it's going to be there whether we're here or not, to be honest. But here we're examining, we're looking at what's most true in our life. And one of the things that's important here is really a process of forgiving ourselves, forgiving each other, forgiving life for the fact that this is a significant, not by any means the only significant element, but a significant element of the way things are. I remember when I was a teenager, I could not understand, and it caused me great distress and concern, why it was I could see so many things happening in the world, apparently done by people out of free will and choice, that were causing so much harm, so much destruction, so much, tragically, and to me it seemed unnecessary suffering. I couldn't understand why and how could people be doing this? How could that happen? And it feels like one is justified to be angry, to be enraged, in fact, 
with what goes on. And sometimes there's a place for that response. Indeed, where it supports a, a skillful engagement with those things that need to be addressed in the world. And there are those things indeed. But there's another aspect that's really important here, which is to understand how does it come to happen? And I've reflected on this for myself, seeing that, yes, I too, and this is sometimes the most painful, isn't it? I too have done things that have harmed other people. Sometimes, mostly not meaning to. But occasionally, because actually I thought they needed it. Or something like that. And it's kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, oh. That happens, doesn't it? I was saying in one of the groups how, you know, I really pay attention or notice that when I'm going to get in the car and drive somewhere... Even to come here in the morning. Sometimes we sleep. I sleep at home, sometimes here. I'm probably going to kill. In fact, certainly going to kill some little beings. And it's kind of like, oh. I don't have to get on the car. I could ride my bike. It's a bit wet. It takes a bit longer. I have to have a shower afterwards. And so I don't. Because it's a little more convenient for me. But at some level, that's not that different than some of the people who in the world... Who, or organisations, states, corporations, with lots of power, just sort of do what's a bit more convenient for them, although it involves flattening some, you know, sort of large square acreage of Amazonian rainforest or, you know, moving some African villages away from the area they want to dig for precious minerals. And it's not that different in a certain way, it's just a different scale. So looking, what's going on in this process? For me, it was really important to understand that we're all suffering here. At times, we're all in the grip of a blind reaction to our own pain. And much of the suffering that's caused and the harmful action that takes place in the world, in fact, I'd go beyond saying much, I'd say all of the harmful actions that take place in the world are attempts to escape from suffering, one way or another. And it's as if we don't quite see that because we we don't really want to acknowledge. We can't know what's in another's mind or heart. But if we look into our own, and this is something that I've made as a regular practice for myself, to stop and check and reflect, oh yeah, when I did that thing that looked like it was difficult for someone else or they told me afterwards it was painful for them, oh yeah, there was something in me that was scared or there was something in me that wanted what I thought I needed and was trying to get it. Hmm? And it's like, huh. So we can start to forgive ourselves, forgive others for that blind reaction. It's like if we're sitting in a park, reading a newspaper. It's a sunny day, nice fantasy. Um, (laughs) Paper's not getting wet. Yeah, it's really sunny. (laughs) And someone kicks us, walks past and kicks us really quite firmly in the foot. Imagine the first response. It's like, you stupid, couldn't you, you know, look where you're going, da-da-da-da-da. We put the newspaper down. They've got dark glasses and a cane. What happens to our response? We're not so angry anymore, are we? We're immediately, oh, they couldn't see my foot. They were just doing what they needed to do. And actually, they've got a pretty difficult situation. And I shouldn't have had my foot sticking out on the footpath. Or pavement, sorry, translating from New Zealand. Call it a footpath in New Zealand. Um, And something shifts inside because we realise, oh, it was blindness. They weren't trying to hurt me. They they did that step completely deliberately and intentionally. But they weren't trying to really hurt me, even though it looks like and feels like that. So we, 
when we see that, what comes more naturally is a compassion, a wish to actually relieve the suffering, to acknowledge the suffering and relieve the suffering that we encounter in another, that we see in their experience, that leads them sometimes to do things that are unskillful, and equally to respond with compassion to ourselves when we mess up, because we do. Because we're just like all those other people. Even when we've been practicing, even if we're mindful and heartful and practice loving kindness, we can still get angry. Certainly I can. One, you know, the endeavor would be not to kind of unload that unconsciously on somebody else, but something in me at times would really quite like to. And sometimes probably the other person gets a reasonably clear impression that that's what's going on. You know? Because they're very perceptive, it's well hidden. <laughs> Maybe not always. Well, it depends. <laughs> so seeing the suffering in it, actually also, if we see the communality, the shared nature of this predicament, then it allows us to bring a bit more forgiveness to ourselves. And it's really important that we're, we might not feel a sense of being able to forgive another, that we see that that's because actually the pain that we're feeling in relationship to what's happened is still more that we can easily hold. And we need to just forgive ourselves for our, in a way, still developing capacity, our not yet fully grown, but growing capacity to hold and begin in that by forgiving ourselves we're setting the foundation from which we will ultimately find the capacity to be able to open to and forgive others also. Understanding that messing up is part of life. We all make mistakes. There's no way around it. There's no other way to learn. And equally to contemplate the very vulnerability and sensitivity of our life as uh, we've touched on in some of the teachings already. But the, the contemplation of death. The Buddha once said to a group of his, his monks and nuns who were arguing quite bitterly amongst themselves in the language in the old translations, I always find, it's like stabbing each other with verbal daggers is the way they translate. It's like, it doesn't sound like they were being too restrained, does it? They're stabbing each other with verbal daggers. Um, and he, he, he once said to them, Knowing that each of you is going to die, how can you quarrel? You know, if we bring that to mind, to know that we ourselves and this person too is subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, how can we get so angry with them, seeing our shared predicament? And to apply this to ourselves, knowing that we ourselves are not here forever, to really see if that can bring some forgiveness to our own hearts. The only way we grow in life, we learn in life, is going out beyond where it's comfortable and familiar. And where it's not comfortable, we're prone to react. And where it's not familiar, we don't have a clue what's going on. So of course we get it wrong sometimes. In the process of life's, or we could say life expanding, or our more and more fully inhabiting the expansiveness of life, we have to go out beyond the comfort and out beyond the familiar and the certain into where there is a risk of messing up. But if we're attentive while we do it, we can notice and reorient or back off 
That's why we cultivate mindfulness and presence and kindliness so that we can notice and that we can respond not with judgment or reactivity so quickly, that we might sometimes still react, of course, but that we can start to support that possibility of coming from a place of care to see what serves this situation, what's going to be helpful here. There's a, there's a natural attentiveness that comes when we recognize vulnerability and uncertainty. I had a very strong experience of this as a, um, I think I was probably in my very early 20s, before I'd engaged in Dharma practice and meditation, I was with a couple of friends walking in the mountains of New Zealand and we were um, doing a kind of an alpine traverse of a, of a, a quite a well-known and popular walking route uh, but that was normally closed in winter because the normal track, you go under these bluffs where these avalanches are waiting to flatten you, so you have to cross a frozen lake, which is a little bit risky. But anyway, we were young and keen and uh, well-equipped, or at least we thought so. And we were out crossing, and I I was leading the group at this time, just myself and a couple of friends, and uh, went out onto this lake and with the ice axe just checking every step or two that the ice is solid and firm, just because it's supposed to be pretty solid out there, and it's well-known that you can cross it. But checking anyway, because that's prudent and wise. And after about a third of the way out, so hitting you know a third of the way out, it was you know, probably 200 metres or more in total to be covered, so it's that 70, 80 metres out. I think, oh, this is pretty solid, and stopped sticking the ice in every step, because you know, it's kind of hard work leaning over and doing that. And just started every now and then, I stick it in, and then walking a few more steps, and then I went through the ice. Probably 90 metres offshore, this thing is... A long way down, very cold water. I'm wearing a big heavy backpack. We aren't roped together because we thought we'll be all right. And I went through the ice. And I, in a very short amount of time, managed to just flip my axe over so it came down flat like that and my arms like this. And I stopped this far in. My backpack hit there. That was enough to hold me, it seemed. Although my heart went right down through and... um, some of my innards were pretty close to following, but not quite. <laughs> but it was just this moment of, whoa, went through the ice and just said, you know, I don't think I need to say, but to my friend back, just, just stay, stay back, stay back. Ice is a bit soft here. And just felt that actually, although where I'd gone through, it just went straight through. It wasn't like it sort of cracked and gave. It just went, poof, straight through. I thought, well, actually, it's solid enough around here. And I just managed to slowly, gently leave my body out you know, with the full weight of me and a backpack on, because I couldn't take it off, um, and got out and took a couple of steps away from the hole and said, okay, you guys, walk around that. <laughs> Obvious. <laughs> and what was interesting is that from there back to the shore, and we were out in the middle by then, there was no point reversing. We just said, okay, we're keeping going. I probably took the most mindful steps I have and will ever take in my life. Every step, the soft layer of snow on the top, foot would go through it, and then wait and see, is it going any further? Every step, incredibly mindful. A little bit anxious, but not too much. And thinking, what happened there? We eventually worked out that there was a stream running in very strongly at a certain point, and it had a trajectory running out into the lake, that was creating a fault in the ice, probably about this wide, right out to the centre, because the stream was running fast. So the solid ice suddenly changed in this little point, and I found it. (laughs) And I could have just as well stepped over and not known it. 
Attention comes easily when we recognize our vulnerability and our sensitivity. It's just one of the good reasons to let ourselves be in contact with it. For all the things that might happen standing in the rain, probably spacing out isn't one of them. Hmm? We actually stay present, even though we might be present with, I don't want to be here, I don't like it, or it's cold and wet, and why are we doing this? Hmm? I was actually really touched that you guys came out and stood, not that everyone needed to. I thought, wow, how sweet, how lovely, how beautiful. Really. I had no idea that that was what was going to happen. I'm actually often quite surprised that most people tend to do what we suggest and all sorts of things. <laughs> you know? And yet, to me, it's also a testament to that spirit of the human heart that is willing to give it a go and see. And what we find is that as we allow ourselves to inhabit those places, as we allow ourselves to explore with the permission to say, that's enough and I'll back off, because we need that permission, it's important to be able to say, that's enough and I'll back off. When we do that, we start to see that in fact, even the pain has its place. Because what it does is it calls us here very fully to notice if there's some pain. Oh, I need to check, is this harmful? Is this dangerous? And if so, I need to do something. But if it's not causing any harm, if it's simply the anticipation of what might be in the future, sometimes it's really okay to say, I can just be with this. I can just use this as a place to open, to expand, to embrace. That we start to see that we can open. This reactive tendency to shut down is not ultimately as strong as the willingness and the capacity and the the natural calling in our heart actually to open, to express the truth of the openness that we are, to manifest that more and more fully. And we see that the real danger, the real threat is to lose contact with, to be exiled from, to become a stranger to the immediacy, the imminence, the the very substance of what it means to be here. To be present, awake, alive, sensitive, responsive, engaged. To lose that is the greatest loss. And it's not something that we are obliged to abandon. We can engage again and again. And as we do, it's like... What we realize, or what I, what, the way I kind of understand this, it's like the sense of closing down that we can experience. It's like sometimes the heart closes to what's difficult, or the, the body tightens. But it, even though it's doing that to try and keep something out, it doesn't quite work that way, does it? Because it actually still hurts, have you noticed? What happens when we close down, it's like we close the back door. Because the front door is always open, we are always going to be touched by life. If we close down the back door, the things that come in can't get out. And it gets really full in here. No space. That's suffering of a greater, considerably greater order and degree. And in a way, that's the suffering we can release ourselves from. That the willingness to be touched really opens the back door of the heart. So what comes in moves through. And it doesn't get stuck. And what we experience, what starts to show is the the flow, the fluidity, the vitality, the dynamic aliveness that we actually start to embrace 
that embraces us with a, a vast sense of okayness and a, a tender sensitivity, a sensitivity that's aligned with compassion and care. And it's really this that we learn to abide more and more fully and deeply in. This openness of heart, this aliveness that really reveals the the peacefulness of life. The, the, how to say it? The, just the okay suchness of things. In which there's a, there's a coming to rest. There's a coming to rest in the midst of it all, in the embrace of it all. So let's just sit together quietly for a few moments. So may we all come to be at ease with the challenges of life, to accept and forgive the the way in which we're still learning, and yet equally to honour the capacity we have to open, to awaken, to embrace our life unconditionally for our own welfare and for the welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.